0: The following is offered by Discerning Hearts, a 501c3 nonprofit Catholic Apostolate dedicated to spiritual formation through the use of new media. To download this selection, or to browse hundreds of other programs, or to contribute to our mission with a charitable donation which is fully tax deductible, visit our website at discerninghearts.com.
1: Ignatius Press and the Augustine Institute present The Formed Book Club, Catholic book lovers unpacking good books chapter by chapter. If you like us, please help us by subscribing and by reviewing us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you might listen. And don't forget to sign up for weekly updates and study questions at formedbookclub.ignatius.com. Welcome to The Formed Book Club. We are going to have a lot of fun for the next few weeks, I believe. We're going to discuss... In Defense of Sanity, by G.K. Chesterton, the best essays of him, selected by Dale Alquist, Joseph Pierce, and Aidan Mackey. Uh, I have some things I want to say at the beginning, but I want to first turn the floor over to Joseph, who was partly responsible for collecting these essays and therefore partly to be blamed if we have any criticisms. Do
2: you want to give any introductory remarks, Joseph? Besides yeah, the I'll, make my, I'll make my defense now, shall I? Um, basically, the idea for the volume was that Chesterton is one of the greatest essayists who ever lived. And uh, you know you can you can only discover that really by going back and buying many of the original volumes of essays, uh, many of which are now out of print. So the idea of bringing the best of the essays together in one volume uh, seemed, seemed a good one. And then we, we, we got uh, Aidan Mackey, who's the Grand old man of Chestertonia uh, back in England, um, kept the flag flying when many people had forgotten Chesterton. Uh, and Dal O'Quist, of course, who will need no ex- introduction to Chestertonians and myself. Um, I suppose that my, my claim to Chesterton fame is my biography of Chesterton, which Ignatius Press published. So the three of us came together and we got our heads together and decided what were the best essays we can put all together in one package. And this book, In Defense of Sanity, is that package.
1: And Aidan Mackey describes that on page Roman numeral 9. The best essays have given us such a richness of erudition, elegance, wit, information, and sheer high bubbling fun that we must know beyond doubt that the essay will not perish because of these essays. Baby, do you have any uh, preparatory remarks?
3: Preparatory, no.
1: Preludial? (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Uh, Well, uh, if I ask the question, what other book that we have, what book do we have discussed on this book from the beginning? What book is a correlate to these essays?
2: Well, we did. We've been going for a long while now, Father, since you and I were young, and that's a long while ago. That um, <laughs> we began right towards the beginning with uh, discussing Gal Olker's book, Night of the Holy Ghost, and that obviously is, was looking at various aspects of Chesterton, Chesterton the essayist, Chesterton, uh, the, the, the uh, biographer, what have you. Um, so that would obviously dovetail with this. Vivian, any thoughts?
3: Well, as far as being a prose stylist – and uh, using imagery and things like that, how can I not think of Thomas Howard
1: exactly that was that was my what struck me immediately we discussed chance or the dance in which Thomas Howard contrasts the new view, modern view of all of the cosmos as result of chance, where everything simply is what it is, and nothing is correlated or signifies something else so that nothing actually means anything else as opposed to the dance where everything's interlocked and everything is connected and everything points to something beyond itself. And certainly this book on almost every page is an instance of what Thomas Howard was talking about and, uh, if, you want,
2: if you wanted to pay the, one of the best compliments you could uh, pay to the genius of Thomas Howard would be to say that he's a Chestertonian par excellence. I mean, when, when you read Thomas Howard, you're seeing someone who's quite clearly of the spirit and of, of, the, of a, a kinship with G.K. Chesterton.
3: And I would say that the fundamental character trait in both of those men that make that possible to see the world in this way is that childlike wonder at things.
1: That's right. And the faculty by which they see these connections is really the imagination. It's not reason in in the sense of rationalization, but recognizing uh, incarnate uh, the connections of things. And that's why I wanted to spend a little time on the very first essay here, Introduction to the Defendant, because there's several references in this essay, clearly, to Chester's method, if I may call it, of the imagination. So on page one, he's in in a valley. He says, whole valleys filled with loose rocks and boulders. So that's what he sees. He sees a bunch of rocks skipping down. The mildest and most cockney imagination conceives the place to be the scene of some war of giants. So right away, she's a bunch of rocks there. And what's the imagining? A war of giants. Further down, if we follow the same mood of fancy, and we're going to find that almost everywhere in these essays, fanciful things, you know. Uh, On page two, if we weigh top of the page, if we weigh the matter in the faultless scales of imagination and continuing for the mission of all the prophets from the beginning has not been so much the pointing out of heavens or hells as primarily the pointing out of the earth. That is to, to have that wonder about the things that surround us that we take for granted all the time. Religion has had to provide that longest and strangest telescope, the telescope through which we could see the star upon which we dwelt. And there again, that's that's so Chesterton.
3: It is, and I would like to follow up that. So this method, Father, you did a beautiful job describing this method of Chesterton, the way he does this by looking at ordinary things and using his imagination to, as, as a window into the essence of things. And, and But then he'll just say the most shocking and extraordinary things that you don't expect at all. Even when you're following his imaginary line on things, all of a sudden he'll just say something really shocking. And what I found shocking shortly after where you just quoted was this, there runs a strange law through the length of human history that men are continually tending to undervalue their environment, to undervalue their happiness, to undervalue themselves. The great sin of mankind, the sin typified by the fall of Adam, is the tendency not towards pride, but towards this weird and horrible humility. (laughs) Now, how can you not stop, full stop, after reading something like that, and have to ask yourself, what is he saying? Yeah, I mean, one thing about,
2: I mean, this connects Chesterton with the metaphysical poets. Uh, Metaphysical poetry is about the conceit. You know, it's about bringing two images together that don't fit. And because they don't fit, it, it, first of all, it does, it, it, it shocks us. It's the power of, 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 of shock and astonishment. And then we, you know, we think about, okay, how can those two things possibly fit together? You know, and, and of course, one of the correlatives of pride, is to belittle everything, right? Including ultimately, of course, ourselves. You know, so, so you know, that, that, that there, is, there is this sort of, it, this of course, humility is not pride, and Chester's not saying that, but, he, but he, he's the, the, the adjectives, weird and horrible, uh, actually disqualify it from being a virtue. But he's saying there's something which is a, a, a twisted warping of the virtue in the sin, which is, of course, exactly what Thomas Aquinas says, And what Dante says. And so, but it's the conceit. And what the Chestertonian paradox is a metaphysical conceit. It's basically, you know, waking us up so we don't fall into the sin of woke. And so, this
1: uh, book was called The Defendant. And this essay is from the introduction. And the whole point is that Chesterton is defending normalcy defending the obvious defending the common things we'll find out later he, he looks in his pocket and finds a, a pocket knife and a ball of string and whatever and all these things he begins to wax uh fancifully on them and lets us see them almost as it were for the first time however uh we're gonna find some essays i think where he goes i would say over the top or uh he he, he is so engrossed in his fanciful imaginings and his beautiful prose that he, you know, he, he goes beyond uh, too far. Uh, the, the second essay, A Defense of Skeletons.
3: Well, before you move on, right, okay. may I just point out one more thing? This, You're right. He can go too far, but there is a deliciousness to his hyperbole. And, and this statement on page three, I mean, who could write a better sentence than this? A knife is never bad except on the rare occasions as that in which it is neatly and scientifically planted in the middle of one's back.
1: <laughs> right. Because what he says below that, what we call a bad knife is a good knife, not good enough for us. What we call a bad hat is a good hat, not good enough for us. What we call a bad civilization is a good civilization, not good enough for us. So I wouldn't say he's an optimist in a kind of mindless way for sure, but he, he does see that omne ens es bonum, all being is good. And he's yes. able to kind of pierce through sometimes the shell of evil we see or the ugliness and see what's okay. good.
2: And when we get to the, the, the diabolist, you know that, that's the whole point is that Chesterton was tempted towards this nihilistic spare which the philosophies of people such as Schopenhauer lead us to. He got close to it and he recoiled actually in uh in wonder, uh, which of course was the fruit of humility. Um, from that. And that's why he, in some ways, you are correct, Father, he goes over the top and sometimes therefore too far in defense of what is good and sometimes gets away with his own enthusiasm and trips over himself.
1: Well, and I think this, this second essay, A Defense of Skeletons, is an example of that because he's going to say here that, you know, really the leaves get in the way of seeing trees. I mean, it, it's, the, it's the tree itself. You see when the leaves go. Well, no, I'm sorry. But a tree with leaves is a much more glorious and beautiful thing.
3: I have to beg to differ. All right. Grown up in the uh, tundra of Illinois in the winter, (laughs) when he was describing the leafless trees against a winter sky, you know, the just incredible stark beauty of winter scapes that I grew up with, ice skating, cross-country skiing, walking through woods in winter. I was, you know, he just brought me back to that, appreciation of the beauty of that. And I think someone like you, Father, who's grown up in California, um, not that you don't enjoy the mountains and hiking and all those things, but enjoying winterscapes is something that I think might you might not have had so much in childhood the way I did.
1: Well, but I, I, I have spent a lot of time in winter in places like Minnesota and Chicago, but in Chicago, there's not that many trees. In Minnesota, there are. Chicago,
3: uh, I beg your pardon, is covered with forest. I mean, not the city, of not course. Not the
1: city. That's what I'm talking Step about.
3: outside the city. And-
1: but even, even Minneapolis-St. Paul, you, you, there's, there's trees everywhere. Uh, Cincinnati, Ohio is another example. It's a city, but you can't find it for the trees. But anyway, what I was going to say is that when I, when I fly into uh, Minneapolis-St. Paul in the early spring, or late, first of all, late fall, and the leaves are there, but they're turning all these glorious colors. And then I fly in again in the spring, and all of a sudden these bare limbs, beautiful as they might be, now are sprouting beautiful leaves. I mean, I I find that phenomenal. And I I think a tree without leaves is, um, I don't know.
2: Yeah, I mean, I'm actually agreeing with both of you, and that's not because I'm a coward. Uh, The the key thing is that uh, here he's setting up the analogy for the metaphor of the skeleton. yes. that the beauty of the enfleshed man is not possible without the skeleton underneath, and the the beauty of the enleaved tree is not possible without the skeleton underneath. And therefore, it's as well for us to actually appreciate the beauty of the skeleton as well as the beauty of uh, of the leaved tree. And if I I may bother, I just want want to, because I want to, when I, I I was minded uh, of, of an image by the poet Roy Campbell in a poem called Autumn. Um, and it's not exactly the same metaphor, but it, this, this, when I saw chest, Red Chest in here, I just want to read the one um, stanza in this poem Autumn by Roy Campbell. I love to see when leaves depart, the clear anatomy arrive. Winter, the paragon of art that kills all forms of life and feeling save what is pure. And will
3: survive we'll
0: return to the Foreign book club with father joseph bezio vivian dudrow and joseph pierce in just a moment discerning hearts presents a very special first-time retreat entitled hope in difficult times with saint theresa Lisieux and her family are you challenged by the daily struggles in your life have your plans for your life changed in ways you never expected are you anxious about the events that swirl around you? Are you fearful for the future of children, family members, and other loved ones as you see them struggle? Has your trust and faith in God been shaken by illnesses or even the death of loved ones? This retreat is for those who are looking for hope in difficult times. Hope in Difficult Times with St. Therese of Lisieux and her family is the first of its kind spiritual retreat led by Father Timothy Gallagher. This in-person retreat will be given on April 7th through the 10th, 2022 at the beautiful St. Benedict Retreat Center in Schuyler, Nebraska. To learn more or to sign up, visit discerninghearts.com.
1: Take, Lord, and receive all my liberty, my memory, my understanding, and my entire will, all that I have and call my own. You have given all to me, To you, Lord, I return it. Everything is yours. Do with it what you will. Give me only your love and your grace. That is enough for me. Amen.
2: Hello, my name is Deacon Omar Gutierrez, and I want to ask you to support Discerning Hearts in a special way. We, Chris McGregor, the Board, and I all know that not everyone listening can help financially. and the more listeners will discover us, listeners who may have the means to contribute in the future. Please consider rating us and writing a positive review today.
0: We now return to The Formed Book Club with Father Joseph Bezio, Vivian Doudreau, and Joseph Pierce.
1: A very famous writer wrote a little book called Leaf by Niggle, and I... I I want to defend leaves here, especially he says I'm not
3: not attacking leaves. I'm only saying that winter (laughs) leaves are gorgeous in their own, in their own way.
2: And there is is no living leaf without the branch.
3: Yes,
1: but that's right. But I, but I, I I think he, in a sense here, uh, disparages leaves in a sense, in order to increase his praise for the branches. But on page six at the bottom, One ground exists for this terror, a strange idea has infected humanity that the skeleton is typical of death. Well, of course it's typical of death. What's a skeleton? It's what's over when you die. Yes. Now, I realize without, without our skeleton, we couldn't do anything, you know. But the fact is, skeletons are signs of death. I mean, that's why you see the memento mori, remember to die.
2: I agree completely Uh, about that, and and, and and I'm not disagreeing, but I think that he answers himself and up to a point answers you on the following page uh, when he says, in the Middle Ages and in the Renaissance, which was in certain times and respects a much gloomier period, this idea of the skeleton had a vast influence in freezing the pride out of all earthly pomps and the fragrance out of all fleeting pleasures. But it was not surely the mere dread of death that did this. For these were ages in which men went to meet death singing. It was the idea of the degradation of man in the grinning ugliness of his structure that withered the juvenile insolence of beauty and pride. And in, and in this, it almost assuredly did more harm than good. So this is just in with you that, yes, that the skeleton is a, 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 a symbol of the memento mori, but it's also a symbol of our own uh, pathos, our own patheticness, and, 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 and in the sense to which we are pride and pompous in the following of fads and fashions, the skeleton is saying, look, you know, you're dust. It's all going to pass away. So it's really it's not just about the fear of death. It's about a prompting or a tricking of pride.
1: Right, but to say that the skeleton is not associated with death –
2: I agree. It's not Going good. And
1: on, on, and on page eight, in the middle, the highest and most valuable quality in nature is not her beauty, but her generous and defiant ugliness. I'm sorry. Yeah, I know that. To me, that's over the top. I, I I know what he's doing. He's making a good point, and you made it yeah. just just now. But uh, I'm sorry. Yeah. You
2: know? No, I, I I I agree. I agree with you completely. Um, uh and would you permit me another seven line poem by checho sure, sure go ahead Well, it's called the skeleton and according to aidan mackey who dated these in the gk in the ignatius collected works uh volume 10 letter poetry part 1 this is late nine, 1890s. in other words a year or two uh three before the writing of this essay right and this, this I think, encapsulates in verse what he's trying to say there, sometimes clumsily, and I agree with you. The Skeleton by G.K. Chesterton. Chattering finch and waterfly are not merrier than I. Here among the flowers I lie, laughing everlastingly. No, I may not tell the best. Surely friends, I might have guessed. Death, was but the good king's jest. It was hid so carefully. All right, and I think you had the images in here somewhere about the skeleton, the skull with a permanent smile on its face, and 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 Elliot does that in the Wasteland, and he talks chuckle spread from ear to ear, right? This sort of grotesque, and this idea of the grotesque. Uh, and that's what Chess is getting at here. Nonetheless, somehow showing, if you like, the caricaturist art in the humor of God. That's what he's trying to get at. And I do agree with you, he oversteps the mark in this essay.
1: And I just d- pointed out, in the sense that I, I I don't, besides perhaps you and Dale Alquist, I don't take second anyone in my appreciation of Chess. I want him to be can- canonized, you know. Uh, but when we read these essays, not as they were written, you know, day after day or week after week, but all together. It's almost like eating too much cream pie all at once, you know. What I mean, and, 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 and then you get, you, you kind of see that he, he's a, he's a, he's a marvel with words, but such a marvel with words that he can start to go on. And uh, it kind of rolls on without him uh, and maybe too far sometimes.
2: I, I think maybe to use, the met- you know, to use a metaphor to, to, to agree with what you're saying, I, I say to people, the people that don't like Chesterton, you know, the people that like Lewis and not Chesterton, for instance, is that they're the people that want to get from A to B by the most direct route. <laughs> right, I mean, you know, Just show me what you're trying to say and, and tell me the, the, the punchline. Whereas Justin takes you on a walk. He perambulates. He, he goes around the houses. He goes around the hedges and goes around the trees. Um, the point is normally he brings you back to where you need to be and you need to enjoy going for the walk. Um, if you enjoy going for the walk and you take your time, you're going to have a great, 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 and you're going to learn a great deal. But occasionally you're right he wanders off and loses himself somewhat, right? Um, he just, he's enjoying the walk so much. He doesn't actually get back to where he's supposed to be, or at least, uh, by a route that was unnecessary.
1: <laughs> well, then a uh, uh, chapter, th- oh, th- the third essay here on certain modern writers and the institution of the family. I mean, this is typical of the timeless Chesterton, you know, the Chesterton who, uh, will be and should be read until the final coming. And I
3: think about this essay though again is that he doesn't do what you think he might do when you re- when you when you see that it's a uh, defense of the family right uh, he defends the family uh, not because it's peaceful and pleasant and a, and a sanctuary from the ups and downs of life. No, he defends the family because it's precisely not those things. In other words, the family is the first school of love, as John Paul II said. That you that you learn love of neighbor because he's there. This is what Chesterton focuses in on. But what I find really bracing about this is how he extends this lesson of loving the man that's there or the person that's there because he's there. Um, He extends this to a lesson about loving neighbor in the greater society. And this discussion of the difference between, you know, a clique and a clan, right? Yes. That the clan meaning the extended family, these are the people you got stuck with. And by the way, his first, his description, I got to read this one sentence because it's just so wonderful. Um, on 17, he says, best way a man could test readiness to encounter the common variety of mankind would be to climb down a chimney into any house at random and get on as well as possible with the people inside. And that is essentially what each one of us did on the day that he was born. (laughs) I (laughs) I mean, just the image of this, you know, is so wonderful. But the whole, the point of the essay really is about what charity is, uh, about, about, as I say, loving the person because he's there, not because you chose him to be there.
1: But I think, and I, I agree, and I think this has a very, very uh, contemporary, timely message about social media. A few quotes here, starting on page 10. This is what you referred to earlier on, Vivian, about two-thirds of the way down. The common defense of the family is that amid the stress and fickleness of life, it is peaceful, pleasant, and at one. But there is another defense of the family which is possible and to me evident. This defense is that the family is not peaceful and not pleasant and not at one. Uh, he goes on, the man who lives in a small community this is a much larger world. Next page eleven. In a large community, we can choose our companions. In a small community, our companions are chosen for us. What is social media primarily these days? It's a way of associating with those who think like you, uh, who who share your ideas, your views, uh, your criticisms, your, you know, your observations, and so you. You you can kind of screen out the people who are other to associate with those who are like you.
3: And so you could consider it a machinery for, as he says on 11, the purpose of guarding the solitary and sensitive individual from all experience of the bitter and bracing human compromises. It is in the most literal sense of the words, a society for the prevention of Christian knowledge.
1: Right. And that's a play on the English society for the preservation of Christian knowledge. Uh, (laughs) A couple of other quotes. Uh, Page 12, new paragraph. If we were tomorrow morning snowed up in the street in which we live, we should step suddenly into a much larger and much wilder world than we have ever known. And, I've got friends, for example, in Houston, when they had the floods a few years back and, and the power went out and people went on their front yards and were barbecuing, and all of a sudden they, they met their neighbors.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Or, and then page, page 14, the new paragraph, we make our friends, we make our enemies, but God makes our next-door neighbor.
3: Right. Like the family. He makes your family, he makes your next-door neighbor. And he does acknowledge on page 13 that, of course, this birds of a feather flocking together is a natural instinct, of course. So he says, of course, this shrinking from the brutal vivacity and brutal variety of common men is a perfectly reasonable and excusable thing, as long as it does not pretend to any point of superiority.
2: Or, or universality. In other words, that my clique is all that there is, and all truth is, uh, is encapsulated within my clique. Yeah, that's the key thing, that we really do learn about the the fullness of reality by actually uh, getting in touch with the fullness, of which is all of our fellow men.
1: Then towards the end, he he talks about uh, life as being a story. And Mm -hmm. then this wonderful little comment on page 19, the end of the first paragraph there. In the same civilization, the chivalric European civilization, which asserted free will in the 13th century, produced a thing called fiction in the 18th. When Thomas Aquinas asserted the spiritual liberty of man, he created all the bad novels in the circuiting libraries. And <laughs> the idea is that it's our freedom, uh, which means you can't predict the future. And then finally, my last quote from this chapter, towards the bottom, and the reason why the lives of the rich are at bottom so tame and uneventful is simply that they can choose the events. They are dull because they are omnipotent. And it's true. I mean, one reason I've never gone on and never want to go on one of these uh, pilgrimages, well, excuse me, I take it back with Joseph Pierce. I did it three times, but uh, that was deleted. I've never wanted to go on a pilgrimage where you get an air conditioned bus and you drive somewhere and you need to get off and do this. I want to go someplace, rent a car, drive someplace and find out what happens.
2: You know, not, not control it. Am I quite a man? Father, you're my kind of man. But
3: anyway. Again, but, that's a,
2: but that's an example, I, Father, I but, but that is an example of where Chastain, technically speaking or literally speaking, goes too far because, you know, in, in, in saying that the rich are dull because they're omnipotent, there's two things. First of all, they're not omnipotent. And secondly, God is omnipotent and he's not dull. So, you know, so again, this is an example of him making his point a uh, literarily, which literally does not make sense. Oh, okay.
1: You know, uh, we've we've kind of exhausted uh, our time, if not our listeners. Uh, we've only covered three essays. I didn't have not too much to say about the others, but you did. But let's start on number four next week and see how far we get.
2: Sure, I was about to ask you. That's going to be our our, our choice now. Is how how long do you want to perambulate with Chesterton? I'm not in any, I'm not in any hurry. I'm I'm happy to follow you Father. So we can carry on with it on running after one's hat. Uh, might we just suggest that we just go up, in that case, to the end of essay 10 again? Because I think if we say read to essay at the end of the 20th essay, we're not going to get there. Let's aim to try to get the end of essay 10 by, in other words, let's cover seven or eight next time, hopefully. Okay. Uh, take it from there. Does, that, does that make sense?
1: Hey, Vivian, okay. Mm-hmm. All right. Thanks, all of you who are still listening or watching, and uh, we'll see you next week on the Forum Book Club. If you enjoyed this discussion, please help spread the word about the Form Book Club by subscribing to the podcast and writing a review. You can sign up for weekly updates at formedbookclub.ignatius.com.